Just before we get started, the Second Act Podcast would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on Treaty 7 land inhabited by the Blackfoot Nations. This includes the Siksika, Pikani, and Kainai. We would also like to acknowledge the Sutsina and Stony Nakoda First Nations, as well as the Métis Nations and all people who make their home on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta. But now that we've paid respects to people that were here before us, let's start the pod. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Second Act Podcast, and today's guest is a really good one to listen to, both in the podcast and in the real world. Well, it's funny, Tara Sloan has many places you can go and listen to her work. I mean, she's been uh, in in the spotlight, um, you know, worldwide for a number of years, uh, With first with her, her band Joy Drop, and then... Uh, and then through her various uh, TV jobs, uh, breakfast television, Rockstar in Excess, and most recently Hometown Hockey. And then she's been doing um, a number of projects that, that keeps her profile up. But it's super interesting to sit down and talk to somebody who has had so many opportunities. And she just keeps finding them, keeps working, keeps uh, you know digging for that next, uh, next opportunity. And, and it's super inspiring to hear what goes into that kind of a life. Well, yeah, and you guys mentioned it in the pod, but Tara just, she's on her 10th act, not just her second, and it's um, it's really incredible not to, and she, it's not like she was handed the, uh, and it's not like she was handed the opportunities either. She worked for every single one of those 10 or 11 acts that she changed to, whether it be hometown hockey or making Love Drop a very well-known name. She put in the effort, and it, and it worked out very well. Yeah, you bet. She talks about what goes into that first, you know, little act of success in her life where she's in a, a band and, and then she's got to, you know, that ends and she's got to keep that momentum going forward. And and it's not always easy and it's not always fun, but she she manages to do it. And now she's, you know, currently working for the San Jose Sharks of the NHL. You know, she's parlayed all of that into being able to live in California, raise her daughter and, uh, you know, do what she loves uh, for a living, which which is all anyone can really ask. But there's so many things about Tara that we could talk about. The best place to start is with Tara herself. So please welcome Tara Sloan. Hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, really interesting to me to sit down and talk with you. Um, I've had a few people with, you know, higher profiles on, and it's always interesting how people identify with them. I, I, I'm pretty careful about who I talk to um, b- before I actually record but sometimes, especially with somebody like yourself, I like to quiz people around me and say, what, what would you, what would be something you find interesting to talk to her about? And um, I had, so if I had six people that I talked to, um, of course, like I would say four of them said hometown hockey. Right. And and then two of them actually said, what was the, uh, the Rockstar in excess whole ordeal about? They remembered that. And for me, um, quite frankly, uh, you'll always be the lady that was in the video with Tommy Lee. So <laughs> it's, uh, there's quite a few things that we could kind of pick to be, uh, your second act and act and talk about, but, uh, but we mostly just want to get to know you and what you're all about, uh, and, and kind of how you got started on all of these different acts. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I definitely think I'm like in my 10th act or my ninth life or whatever. Um, there's, has been more than one reinvention and you know that for many of us, I mean, that starts like at a really young age cause you think you're going to be one thing and then you're not for me. I thought I was going to be an opera singer and I was pretty intent on that through high school. I mean, that was like, I, I ended up 
going to Dalhousie for music and then just simply did not have the discipline to pursue opera. It's it's one of the hardest artistic disciplines. And I was 18 and just didn't have it in me to practice for three hours a day and, and you know, do what you had to do. So that was a first, you know, one reinvention. Um, I ended up going to theater school, but music was always my passion. So that was really the first part of my professional career. I ended up joining this band. We were based out of Toronto called Joy Drop. Put out two albums. One, God, our first one came out 25 years ago. So that is a mind. I can't, I don't know if I can swear, but that's a mind F. <laughs> um, and then our second album, we had the single Sometimes Want to Die. And that's the video you're referring to with Tommy Lee, which was a huge success for us. Um, we broke up after two albums. And then the other thing you're talking about that sort of, you know, people are very curious about still is my experience on Rockstar in Excess. Um, and that was the, yeah, that was also really trippy and really difficult. It's interesting that you say ordeal because a lot of people are like, oh my God, that must've been like so much fun. Um, and it, it was in some ways like the camaraderie was amazing, but it's not fun to be scrutinized like that on international television. But what it did for me is it opened the door to TV in general. And so that's how I ended up. I first started at a small station in Toronto doing entertainment. I ended up in Calgary for five years doing breakfast television and then moved on to hometown hockey, um, which just ended. And now I'm in California working for the San Jose Sharks. Well, man, that's, uh, you just put such a nice, neat little bow on all of that, but you like <laughs> glossed over all the good parts. <laughs> well, I don't know. Ask me about the parts you want to know about. It's just, I feel like I, like there's so much, but I, f I don't want to bore people with the minutia. So whatever you're curious about, I'm, I'm not hesitant to talk about. Well, uh, the first thing that jumps out at me is how you, um, you, you wanted to be an opera singer and you talked about the discipline and the work that goes into that. And I think the notion for a lot of people is rock and roll bands are about fun and doing and and not the the work that goes into it. Did you find that you had elevated your abilities to such a level that segueing into a band like Joy Drop kind of you you had that work ethic that was required to make a band like that successful or were you still developing that? I think I was still developing that, but I think it was more imposed upon me. I mean, I certainly learned a lesson having literally dropped out of, you know, a, a music program in university. Um, but because the guys in Joy Drop were more experienced than me, they had had record deals before, they had toured before. Um, so they knew what it was going to take to for us to get a record deal and be successful. So it was imposed upon me, but I loved it. I mean, we we just you know, we were workhorses. We knew that before we presented ourselves, before we presented our songs, that everything had to be just as tight as can be. So we rehearsed every day. You know, we went to this place in Toronto called Cherry Beach Rehearsal Studio. And we had a room and we were just in there every single day, like working on our songs, working on our, our performance. Um, so by the time we were showcasing for labels and by the time we put out a demo, it was good. And so I learned a lot from those guys and being on the road too. I mean, that was, it's beyond discipline. That's sort of discipline plus like a level of, you know, pushing yourself beyond what may be wise. 
Um, and so they definitely kind of pushed me. That I had resistance to that actually because it was it was really tiring. I, I recently had uh, Earl Pereira from Widemouth Mason on, and he talked about the the challenges that went into being uh, a person of color, and and the drummer mm -hmm. Safran was was a person of color in that band, and talking he talked about you know how those battles had to be won over and over and over again. Did you find that as a woman fronting this band that you had to win those battles over and over again? Yeah, and I don't even know if I won. I mean, like it was a constant push. And I'll, I'll say that our drummer is also a black man and, you know, he had his own encounters as we crossed the country um, in places where he felt safe and places where he didn't feel safe. Um, but for me as a woman in rock, it was definitely like just constantly this, you know, pushing this boulder uphill at the time. And I think rock music is still pretty male dominated. Um, but the alternative stations are, I think, pretty damn equal, which I love. But for us in rock at that time, it was either like, oh, we're already playing one woman. That woman was probably like either Biff Naked or Garbage. And oh, we can't add another one to the playlist or like we don't play women. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get into interview situations and the narrative just becomes about that. So, yeah, it, it felt it felt like a challenge. But for, for me, for sure, like I I think if we'd had more willing program directors, you know, people who weren't like, oh, I don't think our audience wants to hear a woman. I think we would have been more successful than we were. Like we we did okay, and our singles did well north and south of the border. But I think we could have could have charted higher. Yeah, and I mean, I think everybody sees those in uh, in time after you have an opportunity to look back on it. But you must have done something right, even south, like you say, south of the border to to get, you know. Tommy Lee willing to sit down and go through that. Can you talk a little bit about how that developed and how that all came about? I mean, it wasn't as complicated as people think. Um, you know, we had a record company um, that had spent money pushing us. So, I mean, it, that that really helped. You know, we had tour support, so we were able to do the things we had to do to get the word out and meet program directors at radio and make sure that they were playing our music. Um, but when it came to Tommy, like we did have a connection, like our, I think that our music video director knew his manager. So we were able to get our music to him, but he just liked the song. Like he liked the song. It was really as simple as that. I, I think he got paid like five grand or something like, you know, a, a, just a tiny percentage of the budget. Um, he just liked the music. And I mean, I, in retrospect, I'm sure the fact that I was like a, you know, a pretty girl did wasn't didn't hurt yeah um and that you know he was gonna just kind of play my love interest so uh and he was lovely you know i actually had resistance to him being in this video and i was overruled um because you know he'd had a past that was with you know with pam and that you know there were spousal abuse allegations like he'd been in jail uh i didn't feel comfortable with that but i was overruled um and you know my personal experience with tommy was he was 
charming and lovely and like a big kid who'd never really had the chance to grow up outside of the limelight. So he, you know, and his presence in our video did us a lot of favors. Right. I mean, we're talking about it 20 years later, right? It's, it's interesting to see how that happens. I, I interviewed another lady who wrote a song with Nikki six for through Canada's got talent. And, mm -hmm. and she says the same thing. Like these guys were so huge, so early in their career that, there are these, you know, grown men that just never really had those opportunities to make mistakes without the whole world knowing. And now they're mm -hmm. these older dudes that are just like, they're, they're making these like mid twenties mistakes under the spotlight. And she said like the same thing, like he couldn't have been more supportive. He couldn't have been a, a better partner, it's very responsive to her ideas. And it's like, not at all what, like, she's like, She's like, I almost feel like some people want the story to be different, right? And it's mm -hmm. not that at all, right? These are just guys who happen to be very successful musicians. Yeah, and Tommy was the youngest of the bunch. And, you know, what I loved about him was he had this endless enthusiasm. And I, I don't know if he still has it. We haven't talked in probably a decade. But he was like, he was like a kid on Christmas morning when he listened to music that he loved. And that was cool. That was cool for somebody who'd been in the business for that long um but it also meant like yeah he he was always you know with a handler like he, he just not sure how capable he is of like running his own life <laughs> yeah and that's i think that's a he comes by that honestly with the the way mm -hmm. his, his life has gone so so you go and do that and and joy drop you know runs its its course and, and you're off looking for something different and and i do want to kind of talk about the rockstar in excess thing because i think that's something that uh only somebody from the inside of that can give you the you know and not even just the the inside skinny on it or the dirt it just what is that like because now you're being judged for entertainment like it's the whole point of it is to go up there and and be judged and you're trying to you know honor somebody who has this legacy of musical brilliance i think you know michael hutchins is is he's got his place in history for sure oh, yeah yeah absolutely. and and you're being like hey let's kind of entertain entertain us while you're doing this and that has to be just an incredible experience to look back on yeah it is i mean it's i mean it's so complex um I think like the overarching theme is I think there should be a support group for people who've been on reality shows because nobody really can understand that experience unless you've been in it because it is such a unique fishbowl. Um, you know, at that time, I was really hesitant to do that show because it there was nothing like it. The only thing that was out there at the time was American Idol. Um, so it wasn't kind of accepted to be a musician who made their name that way like it is today um and this was the first of its kind in that it was going to be there were was going to be rock musicians because idol at that time wasn't really rock oriented it was very pop oriented so i wasn't convinced that it was going to be the right thing for me to do but ultimately i would have regretted not having done it and that was sort of you know that was my guiding light um yeah, I mean, you know, I think we were all so naive. Like, we just didn't know what to expect. Uh, I think they really wanted us to be pitted against one another. And they really weren't successful for the most part because 
the thing that they didn't realize about musicians is that musicians are, you know, used to working together. Um, and we were a very supportive bunch. We were all really different. Like, I think they cast it brilliantly. Everybody was uniquely talented and none of us were the same. So it's like, we didn't, it didn't feel like a competition amongst us at all. Um, except maybe with JD Fortune, who's the one who won. And he was really the, he was the squeaky wheel in the whole bunch, but that was by design, I think. Um, but to be, yeah, to be kind of criticized, picked apart. I mean, I guess it's what you sign up for, but you know, they have their, they have their storylines going in. So it came, became obvious to me that I was not a favorite for them and that they were going to make it difficult for me. Um, so that's, that's not fun. You know, you're, you feel like you're literally fighting for your life. And I remember the week I got kicked off it, it, I mean, as gutting as it was, I was relieved because I'd been in the bottom three so many times. It was like, Oh my God, I can't do this again. Like I can't live with this level of stress. Yeah. And I think that's what they play on. But at the same time, if they're bringing in, you know, uh, a male, uh, you know, guy who's got the soaring voice and a female who's got that raspy kind of grunge thing going on and they're looking for a specific thing. It's not like they lined up, um, you know, six brunettes who can sing and you have, who's going to blow our doors off. Like, you know what I mean? It, like you say, going in, especially from the inside out, you have to say, well, clearly this is what they're trying to do with this. And I'm here until I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think we're going to glued in. Like I, I we should have known from the beginning that like JD was the ringer, right? Like he really was. And we later found out to all of our surprise, which is so ridiculous and naive in retrospect that they had a story writer, right? Like we didn't realize that it was constructed that way. We didn't realize that they wrote storylines and kind of constructed them um, and edited them accordingly. So we were just like, we were, we we're just in it for the music and we, you know, we were, framed a certain way. Um, but you know, what I was left with was, uh, you know, were a lot of really close friendships that remain to this day. We had a rock star reunion zoom last year or no, during, during COVID. And it was awesome. You know, it's, and, and some of us are in very close touch. Uh, but I, I have a bond with all of those people. So looking back on it now, you know, 15 or more years out. More. Like, what is your, yeah. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on, on the premise of that? Like, do you think that's the way to, you know, that kind of, I don't want to say exploit, but like for the, for the people that are trying to keep that, that catalog buoyed up and, and do that, is that a fair way to treat a band like NXS's legacy? I mean, Probably not, but it, I think NXS fans actually really liked it. So, in fact, the the way I ended up on that show was a girl, uh, this woman named Chris, who's a massive NXS fan, also a massive Joy Drop fan, submitted a package on my behalf. Um, so that's how they found me. So I, I think the fans liked it. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I like. I understand if people think it's kind of sacrosanct, you know, that like, I mean, Michael Hutchins was untouchable and you can't, you know, recreate what he 
had and what he did. Um, it was certainly, I think, a very smart way of reintroducing in excess to a you know a newer generation who might not be familiar with them. I just, you know, I would have done different things with the show if I had been in charge. Like, why didn't they have, they have so many friends. Like, why didn't they have like cooler or any like guest judges or I don't know. Yeah. I would have done it differently, but no, I don't, I actually think it was kind of neat. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. Like anytime you can it reintroduce those classics to, you know, like what they're doing with Pantera right now, like it's not Pantera, but man, there's a bunch of kids out there that have never heard those songs live. And I think it's just great that that's what they're doing. And I, you know, as long as it's treated respectfully, I I love any opportunity to get stuff like that out, especially mm -hmm. some of those radio songs from the late eighties, man, like they were everywhere for a period. I mean, I spent so long, you know, I, I loved in excess growing up, but I wasn't obsessed, but I mean, having to learn a big chunk of their catalog for the show, it's, it was like, wow, you forget how many hits they had. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you get doing that and you come out of that and there's, there's a bunch of stuff that happened, you know, at this point you, you have a profile, um, you've, you've been on some TV, you've had some success. What do you, like, how do you make those decisions? You must've had some opportunities. How do you make those decisions on based off of what you want to do and, and where you see yourself kind of moving ahead? I mean, I had opportunities. Yeah. The, the, the ones that kind of, you know, came to fruition. I had been working on a solo album for years. I had been traveling to a town called Pembroke, Ontario from Toronto. So like a seven hour milk run on the bus to work with my dear friend, who's a musical genius called Jordan Zadarozny. His band is called Blinker the Star. Um, but we had sort of been, you know, for years working on this material. And by, you know, by the time Rockstar and Excess happened, we hadn't found a home for it. So it took until 2007 for it to actually be released. But I think without Rockstar, it would have been hard. Um, but the main opportunity that arose was TV because I was the first Canadian eliminated. A lot of the Canadian entertainment outlets were using me as their like Rockstar correspondent. So ET Canada, eTalk, I was doing a weekly hit on um, rock radio show in Halifax, my hometown. So I just kind of, yeah, being, being the first Canadian eliminated, I had these, these opportunities. And when it came time to do auditions for the second season of Rockstar, they used me as a host. I went across the country with Rick Campanelli doing that. So that was really what emerged. And I, I don't think, you know, without that, I don't think I would have done become a broadcaster frankly and then that's what gave you the reps that you needed to be able to confidently go in and, and start to uh to vie for some of those opportunities yeah i mean it was that and the abject frustration of putting out an album that i loved that sold like a thousand copies and just you know just coming to a conclusion that i had to get a job that paid me every week um and yeah, it just that that door started to, you know, open bit by bit. And so I was so fortunate, you know, it was still the time when small stations existed and you could just, I mean, I, I applied with my very limited demo reel that Michael Landsberg helped me put together. And 
I got a job like with zero experience. I just don't feel like that would happen right now. Yeah, I think there's it's cleverly constructed to keep things like that from from occurring on the regular, right? Well, there just aren't those stations anymore either. Like yeah. this was I worked at this station called Sun TV, which was owned by Sun Media, but it was just a placeholder. So they had to have local content. Um, but it, it, yeah, it just, it was small fry. So the producer, um, Paul Schmidt's like, I, I think you're smart. I know, you know, entertainment, you've been on the other side of the microphone. So let's give it a go. So how do you parlay, um, the sun entered their sun TV role into, I mean, arguably, um, short of, of the actual hockey night in Canada gig hometown hockey for all those years was like the premier hockey opportunity, um, sitting beside, you know, hockey broadcasting royalty every, every week. How did you, what, what, what was the time in between of that? And, and what did, when hometown hockey, when Rogers and Sportsnet came calling, what did that look like? So the, the stepping stone really, and, and the catalyst was, was breakfast television in Calgary. Um, that was the best broadcasting education you could get because you're, you're doing three and a half hours of live TV five days a week and everything happens. You are prepared for anything and everything. People walking through your shot, somebody breaking a window, um, you know, things coming crashing down, really terrible interview subjects, drunk people, um, laughing fits, you name it. And so, you know, and you just get your chops up, right? You get your, you, you know how to come out of break, you know how to throw to break, you know, that like the nuts and bolts of, of broadcasting. But it was there also that I started to do some sports stuff um, through a happy accident. I ended up being thrown on Canada's Sports Hall of Fame inductions in probably 2011 because Hazel May couldn't make it from Toronto. And it was there that the president of Sportsnet, uh, Scott Moore at the time, saw me and was like, you're really good at this. Do you like sports? And I was like, yeah, I love sports. And so they started throwing me the odd thing. I did some Hitman games. I did the University Cup when it was called that um, in hockey. I did a bunch of provincial curling championships. I did a bobsleigh event, just whatever, you know, whatever they had going on in, in and around Calgary. Um, and so I, you know, the Sportsnet and I were already in communication. I'd made it clear that I wanted to move solely into sports and hockey was my thing. And then when they got the rights to the NHL, um, that, you know, I saw the press release for hometown hockey and I knew that's what I wanted. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, 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 a no brainer for, for somebody who's likes hockey and, and that opportunity. Um, but it, it obviously like any, and we, we talk about this a lot on this podcast because we try to, you know, find people that are doing something cool and unique and chasing their dreams. And, and a lot of people have those same things. And unfortunately, a lot of those jobs where people think, Oh, that would be great. I would love to do that. It's not, it's not all just 
you know, standing in a, in a place and, and highlighting all these great stories that go around, there's a bunch of travel and, and you're missing things. You're, you're gone from people for that you love for extended periods. Mm-hmm. Talk about that education from, from landing that role. And then what, what hometown hockey became and, and that, I don't want to use the word grind, but, but that. No, it was a grind. <laughs> well, for me, the irony that kind of became evident was like, I had been exhausted by the road and the grind of the music business and then i you know got thrown into um the grind and the travel of the hockey business um i wasn't in a van but sometimes i was you know in a i don't know pickup truck crossing saskatchewan with ron mclean beside me praying that i didn't kill him um so yeah i mean for sure like it's I think if people knew how much goes into a single broadcast, you know, how much time and effort and collective effort I, I want to add because like nothing happens alone. Um, but we'll go into a, you know, a 30 minute tidbit of information. It's an incredible amount of work and digging and um, caring. So, you know, there's that, but the work part of it, I think, you know, that stuff, the storytelling, that's what kept us afloat because that stuff was always inspiring and meeting people was inspiring. And there's just no shortage of just uplifting content. But for sure, you reach, I would say around this time. So we're talking, you know, early to mid-January before the all-star break. And so you've already passed the halfway of the season. So you've been on the road, whatever it is, like 12, 13 weeks. And that's when you start getting really tired. And sometimes, you know, the way that our our schedule would be, it's like, okay, we'd start out the season closer to home. We all lived in Toronto. And then we'd go out west for like six stops in a row. And so we were based in Toronto. So it would be like, if we're lucky, Calgary and back. But then it would be Lethbridge and back. And then it would be Lloyd Minster and back. And we're so we're talking like a flight and a drive in the winter. Yeah. Or it would be, you know, somewhere on Vancouver Island. So so those, you know, when you're doing that, sometimes you just can't believe that you have to do it again in three days. Um, but again, it was really the people really kept us afloat. Um because if we didn't love what we did, it, it would have felt so much harder. Oh, I can imagine. And and I think, you know, um, you, you do have a bunch of producer credits on that. And you talked about the c- collaborative nature of that. And there, there had to have been some days where the only reason you were doing it was for that extra part. Like you you could do the the other part from a studio in Toronto. It's the getting out, meeting the people and and getting an opportunity to show a small town and have them be on TV. You know, that, that, you know, tier two Adam team that you're going to use for a couple of your cutaways. Yeah. Like that's the highlight of their life, uh, not their life, mm. but, but yeah. their, their hockey season for sure. Right. Mm. And you get to bring yeah. that joy to them. And even from a storytelling perspective, like there's only so much you can Google, you know, you just need to get boots on the ground and get the vibe and understand who means the most there. Like it might not be, you know, you might not be able to see like, you know, the guy who was the minor hockey president, you know, 40 years ago, yeah. um, you know, who's a hero, like th- those things um, aren't necessarily evident. So, you know, we had 
the resources, you know, were um, local organizing committees who gave us so much information, um, our producers, but we had to be there. You could not do that show from a studio. No, absolutely not. That was the magic of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, but of course it's, you know, it's also what made it hard towards the end and impossible during COVID, you know, just the, like, yeah. just impossible to sustain. So the logistics of it uh, eventually put, put that, drew that to a, a, a close, but, but you're not done with that stuff yet. You still, uh, I'd like to, to ask you a couple of questions about what uh, top of her game, mm. how that became and, and what that is to you. Well, that was, you know, sort of sad but true that it took COVID and the absence of live sports to get a woman about a woman, a show about women in sport off the ground. Um, but it did provide that opportunity because everything had come to a halt and they were really desperately looking for things to fill up the airwaves. So my executive producer from hometown hockey ali redmond and i just you know jumped in and we enlisted some of our hometown hockey team who weren't doing anything else at the time and so we did you know basically a year of uh, interviews with amazing inspiring women in sport and women around sport um from like age 15 to like 95. um it was really yeah, it was really satisfying. And I was I was sad, you know, when every when everything resumed, it we just didn't have the people power to keep it going. Um but, you know, that kind of ethos is I carry I just carry that with me. You know, the podcast that I'm doing now, I I look at my guest list, you know, asks and it's almost all women. So, I just, you know, I just kind of do that naturally. Yeah, and I think that's something that, um, you know, with some of the some of the obstacles you've been able to overcome in your career, you know, if you're able to even not, you'll never remove an obstacle, but if you can just make it not quite, if you can sand the top of that hill off for somebody and give them that opportunity, I think that's uh, just a natural thing for for somebody who's who's walked that path to want to be able to do, right? Yeah, and I think just even highlighting, like, the stories exist, but you scroll through your favorite, you know, sports news site and you got to get to the very bottom to find anything about, you know, women. Maybe you'll find something about, you know, tennis. Yeah. Or, you know, if Brooke Henderson wins something, but like there's just not a lot. And so to bring it sort of top in mind, just create awareness is step one. Yeah. And I, I say that like my, uh, my all-time number one guest that I'd like to get for this show is Haley Wickenheiser because of not only is she one of the best hockey players that's ever played the game, regardless of of sex, what she's done after that is incredible. She easily could have coasted on being Haley Wickenheiser for the rest of her life, and <laughs> and she hasn't, right? And that's to me when, is like, yeah, what she does is like it's just I don't know how she, um survives like does she sleep <laughs> it's uh it's really she is a re remarkable human being yeah no it's for sure that's uh that's one of the the bucket list ones for us here at the second act but um yeah i just through all the things that we've talked about um one of the things that kind of is a common thread in 
<clears throat> for everybody um, and with the highs and lows, and we talked a little bit about it with rock stars is how do you manage, you know, mental health ups and downs um, through you've had some soaring highs and you've had some, some lows. How do you manage to stay level through all of that? I don't, you Fair know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I struggle at times and I have, you know, I've had periods of, you know, I don't know if clinical depression, I certainly, I have anxiety. I've had panic attacks. You know, I have sought help on numerous occasions for that. And I talk to a therapist regularly. Um, I meditate in the mornings. Um, that, you know, that is, that's been part of my life since I was a kid. And I definitely think doing meditation with consistency is, is really helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there are times, there are days, even when everything's going right, where it doesn't feel like things are workable or manageable. So, you know, I think I'm just, I'm fortunate. I have resources and means. Um, I have a supportive family and, and friends, you know, and I, I appreciate that not everybody has that around them. So I know how lucky I am. And so that's why I'm also open about it because I think, you know, there is still a lot of stigma around seeking help. And so there are a lot of free mental health resources out there. So I think for anybody who doesn't feel like they have the support or, or means, um, you know, I just think do a little digging and, and you'll be able to find somebody to talk to. Yeah. I think, uh, the, the ability for us to speak about it freely um, in the, over, that's developed over the last, you know, number of years, but primarily since COVID when everybody got to acknowledge that this is not normal for me and I am not loving it, um, mm -hmm. makes it easier. And then to hear people like yourself that are willing to say, it, what you see of me is not like, that's a curated version of who everyone thinks Tara Sloan is. And, and mm -hmm. this is what happens in my real life. And these are the tools and other people can go, okay, that, that makes sense to me or, or not. And they can go find their own thing that works for them. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, I think the conversation is the important part. So we like to kind of wrap up at the end uh, and talk a little bit about success. And, and that's such a kind of a loaded word. We like to understand a, a little bit about our guests kind of view of success at the beginning. And then as their careers take twists and turns and they do different things. What is success to you now? And and how different are those two visions all these years in? Yeah, it's a great question, I think, um, or and a great reflection. You know, I remember in Joy Drop, probably also because we had people around us who were pushing us. And but I remember, you know, looking at chart position and it, nothing was ever good enough. Right. Like, I, I think unless we had, you know, won a Juno and a Grammy and charted number one and sold a million albums, like, I just don't think it would have been enough. I remember when we were nominated for a Juno in 2002, not really thinking it was a big deal because I don't know why. I just think like nothing ever felt like it was a, a it never felt like a success. Like it wasn't, we didn't celebrate it that way. And so, I don't think I really appreciated the journey properly or in a way that I could have. 
And so for me, I think success then would have been perfection. And I am a clinical perfectionist. I know that. Gray areas are really difficult for me. I'm really hard on myself. Um, but I'm learning. And for me, you know, I have a different energy level. I have different aspirations. It's not, I've done, you know, and I reached a, a high level of visibility with hometown hockey. Um, but, you know, as we discussed, it comes with sacrifice. I, I was away for my daughter a lot. So for me now, success is, comes in the form of, of balance and, you know, obviously the opportunity to do something that I can make a living at, that's success for me to, um, you know, to do something that's impactful. I think that I didn't have that sort of social conscience so much when I was in my 20s, and now it's very present for me and very important. And then that I have a little space in my life. I'm just not my best self when I am 24-7. Just not. One of the great things I've learned about recording podcasts with people like Tara are why those people are as successful as they are they don't push so hard for things they kind of let things come to them they pick up on cues in the universe and they take advantage of opportunities that come to them and it doesn't hurt that people like tara sloan and natasha stanishevsky and rick campanelli are effortlessly cool you just get this vibe from them that they 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 get it they understand it um, they don't, you know, admittedly probably always do everything exactly the right way, but, but they figure a way out. And that was the vibe I got from Tara the whole time. She was just in control. She had no trouble talking about the ups and the downs. And I thought the ending, her definition of success was as good as any I've heard having the space. She doesn't, she isn't her best self when she's 24 seven. I thought that was a unique way. I don't think anybody's put it that way, even if some some of the people were were edging towards that. And and I think that's um something that you just you either have or you don't. I just don't know that it is something that can be taught or whatever the right word is. Uh but super fun pod with Tara Sloan. She um we've been trying to find a time that worked for a while. And, and she, she said, let's book it into January. I'm busy with a bunch of podcasts. And, uh, and she, you know, we were able to sit down and hammer it out and it couldn't have been, couldn't have been more fun. we got a bunch of great ones coming up next week. Episode 87. We're talking to Gord Nickel of North 40 cannabis. And, uh, it's a, it's a really fun conversation with a guy who was doing a bunch of things kind of normal, working for himself, owned a trucking company, did some development in Alberta and he moved, um, he moved to Northeastern Saskatchewan and he, he built a, a cannabis cultivation facility. It's one of the only profitable micro cultivation facilities in Canada at this point. And, uh, it's a super fun conversation to talk about what you think that is and what that really is. And, uh, and then the week after this, we have, uh, Number episode number 88, we have Chase Barber from Edison Motors. And Chase and his business partners are building a an electric semi in Merritt, BC. They're they're doing a production run of these electric semis. And they've you know what? I just gotta you gotta tune in to, to hear Chase. His passion and his knowledge are 
both unbridled and uh, it's super, super interesting conversation with Chase. And we're just, you know, doing a bunch of these different fun ones as we approach episode 100. We want to, we want to make sure everybody's uh, hearing what they want to hear. You know, uh, we haven't asked for a, a review or a rate in a while, but go to your, your podcast uh, platform and, and let people know, um, retweet it out there. Let's get the, get the word out on the second act podcast. So as we say at the end of these, there are no wrong answers and no test at the end. So make the most out of every day. The Second Act Podcast would like to thank Ben Sound for the intro and outro music. Happy Rock. That is www.bensound.com. We'd also like to thank Chin Whiskers for the promotional consideration. You can find them at your local Tommy Guns, Original Barbershop, Amazon, or chinwhiskers.ca. And we would also like to thank you for listening. Test the microphone. No mmm noise. You're an asshole.